Well, this morning I want to talk about a topic that I think is appropriate to this Labor Day weekend, and that is the topic of work. I just want to say to begin, one of the writers in this area, Tim Keller, has been very instrumental in my own life in just getting me to think about some of these issues of work, and I appreciate much of what he has written in that. The point I, I would like us to see this morning is that work is sacred. Now, I've been a pastor for 35 years, and how many of you, if I asked you this, how many of you would say that, you know, for 35 years I've spent full-time serving the church, uh, <coughs> preparing messages, and working in the church how many of you would say that probably that the work that I do is more sacred than the work that you're doing every day? How many people would say that? <clears throat> okay. How many people didn't want to raise their hand because you knew that was the right answer, but you didn't want to admit it? Okay, all right. <laughs> I hope by the time you walk out of here that I can change, that God will change the way you think about work. Truth be told that many of us really, really believe that the missionary working in a foreign country, that somehow their work is more sacred than the work you're doing at the factory or the fast food restaurant or the insurance business or wherever you might work. We need to begin in the very beginning, which is, of course, Genesis. And it doesn't take very long for the topic of work to come up in the Bible. In fact, it's one of the first topics that we see. Genesis 2, the second chapter, you're barely into the Bible, and listen to what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and in the seventh day God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. Three times it talks about the work that God had been doing. So we know this, right from the very start, that the work that God does is sacred. Can we agree on that? When God, whatever God does is sacred. Whatever God's work is, his sacred work and his work of creating. Everything from creating people, which of course was very important, to creating the honeysuckle or the hummingbird or whatever he did. All of his work, we know, is sacred. The word sacred is very, very similar to the word holy. It means set apart for God's purpose. So, when God does something sacred, sacred work means work that is fulfilling God's purpose that he intends. That is what makes it sacred. Now it's interesting, after six days, God rested. And we know that's very important. We don't have time. There's a lot of issues here we don't have time to delve into. But as we know, one of the commandments is that we're all to take a day of rest from our work. And he said not only was work sacred, but... He says here, rest is also holy or set apart or sacred for a special purpose. So what do you think God did the day he rested? Have you ever thought about that? 
So God creates the whole world. What do you think he did? Think he took a nap? Probably not. The Bible says God does not slumber or sleep. You think he recovered? I don't think God has to recover from anything. We don't know. It doesn't tell us, but, you know, what do you think he would have done? I, I think he just enjoyed what he'd made. Don't you think? I mean, he looked at, the, he looked at Mount Everest, and he, you know, and his, God was present everywhere, but he, he gazed out over the oceans and, and, and went down under the coral reefs with all the fish that were teeming there. And, and then he walked with this man that he'd created. Now, you can just imagine he, he carefully looked at the, the look on their faces as they discovered all of the new things and explored the beauty of this garden and the beauty of one another. It must have been a very satisfying feeling. Now, in, in chapter 2, we get, we get some more of, of the details. We get some more of the details of, of what he had done there. In, in chapter 1, verses 26, it says, he says, Let us make man in our image, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so God comes, he creates the earth, he creates, you know, he works and then he rests and then he takes man and he makes them in his image. So there are certain ways, obviously, which we're not like God, but there's also a number of ways in which we are like God because we are made here in his image. And so we see that he put them there. And if we look ahead a little bit, in chapter 2, it tells us a little bit more, and this is what it says. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. There's the word work. So God put, God works and then he rests. Now he, may, now he makes man in his image and he puts him in the garden to work it. A number of things that we see here that he does. If, if we look at chapters 1 and 2, he says that they are to rule, for one. Number two, they are to fill it. They are to enjoy it. They are to work it, as we see here. And they are to care for this earth, for this creation, in where he has put them. In other words, we, we see from the very beginning there is work and God blesses it and it's very good, and it's sacred. Sacred work. It's not part of a curse. It's part of God's design for each of our lives. So just as God worked and rested, so now man in his image is to work and rest. And so God's design here is that man would continue, in essence, to fill the earth, and he would continue the creative process which God had begun upon the earth. To take the raw materials now of the earth and to continue, as God did, to create and to form that which is beautiful. I think we, getting back to my earlier question, is, is your work sacred? We see here that if work involves fulfilling God's purposes for his created world, then there must be something sacred about it. 
I mean, we must certainly conclude here that taking care of a garden is sacred, can't we? If the work that God gave man to do in the beginning was to care for the garden, then we know that gardening is sacred. How many of you garden? Okay, so you know what you're doing in the garden is sacred, right? So, we begin to see here, and I want you to see with me this morning, I, I want to expand our view. And so, if working in the garden is sacred, then couldn't it be true that making tacos for people is sacred? And mowing the grass could be something sacred. And, and putting together boxes to ship things to people could be sacred. Could it not? So what about things that aren't necessary for life that people do? Maybe you're doing something that the world could live without just fine. There are probably a lot of things like that. I mean, do we have to have a bricks ice cream? Yeah, I know. I heard that. <laughs> I realize some of you cannot imagine life survival without ice cream. But we could get along without it. We, we, don't, we could get along without perfume. We could get along without Packer Paleophanalia, right? No. Okay. <clears throat> it's a tough crowd this morning. <clears throat> I mean, just think of things like music and art. We could live without it, but life would not be the same. John Calvin, one of the early reformers, writes this. Did God create food only to provide for necessity and not also for delight and good cheer? So too the purpose of clothing apart from necessity in grasses, trees, fruits, apart from the various uses, there is beauty of appearance and pleasantness of fragrance. Did he, in short, render many things attractive to us apart from their necessary use? Now think about that. Didn't God give us so many things that we really wouldn't have to have, but just enjoy I mean, do we really have to have 100,000 different species of trees? Couldn't we? we could have just had four. You know, hardwood and a softwood. Do we really need 32,000 species of fish? Or 20,000 different butterflies? Think about it. I mean, there are so many stars. There are probably more stars we'll never see than stars that we do see. And so, maybe it, maybe it is a very sacred thing to go out and build a deck and when you're all done, to sit down with a glass of iced tea and just enjoy it. Could that be a sacred work? Could that be acting in the image of God who worked and created and then rested from His work and enjoyed that which he had created. Jesus comes and most of his life, he's a carpenter. Was that a sacred work? Was Jesus' work that he did sacred? We must conclude that Jesus was God in the flesh and everything he did had to have been sacred work. Work that is done to fulfill the purposes of God. 
There was a definite purpose for those years in that carpentry shop. Philosopher Al Walters writes this. He says, The earth had been completely unformed and empty in the six-day process of development. God had formed it and filled it, but not completely. People must now carry on the work of development by being fruitful. They fill it even more. By subduing it, they must form it even more. As God's representatives, we carry on where God left off. But this is now to be a human development of the earth. The human race will fill the earth with its own kind. It will form the earth for its own kind. And from now on, development of created earth will be societal and cultural in its nature. And so we make fabric and we create clothes and and fashion for people and we find ways to harness energy for electricity and, and we push brooms to clean up spaces and we teach uninformed minds how to learn and how to read and how to write. We continue to fill and form and subdue and everything we do to fulfill that. I submit to you today is sacred work. So, so what is this term then, secular work? We hear, you know, people say, well, I was, a, I, was a, I was a missionary, but now I'm just doing secular work. Now, I, I kind of understand what people are saying by that, but I, I, I don't think it's good use of terminology. So I want to give you a different definition for secular work. Secular work is anything we do that is not done to fulfill God's purposes for our world. Or anything that is done with a motivation and in a way that whose, not, whose intent is not to fulfill God's purposes for the world. I believe that all work that carries on God's purposes in the world is sacred work. Whatever is not, is not sacred. And whenever work becomes an idol, it's no longer sacred. I'll say something about that in just a moment. So, here it is how you know when your work is sacred. When the work that you are doing is done out of service to God and others, you know you're doing sacred work. You know the great commandment was? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your neighbor as yourself. When you work to fulfill that commandment, you are doing sacred work. Whatever it is that you're doing, in 2 Corinthians, the people were coming to, coming to Christ in faith and they were thinking, oh, now that I'm a Christian, I have to change what I'm doing. I can't do my same occupation. And they, even, they took it to the extent that if they were living with a, a non-believing spouse, they felt they were to go out of that situation. Notice what, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Nevertheless, each one of you should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Even to the slaves, Paul says, don't try and get out from being a slave. Just You can do sacred work in whatever work God has called you. Whatever the place in life that God has assigned you to, your work can become sacred. You just need to be doing your work now to fulfill and in mind of the purposes of God. Martin Luther was really big on this. And he, he wrote about 
He wrote about this in a number of places. And he had a real reaction to those who separated clergy and laity and, and were using those kinds of terms. And he makes this point. He says, you know, we pray the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. So how does God do that? How many of you went out this morning and picked up manna from heaven? I mean, that was an amazing thing, but that's not how, it, that's not how God fulfills that prayer anymore, is it? How does God fulfill that prayer? He has farmers who plow ground with machinery that is designed by in engineers and manufactured in manufacturing companies. Grain which is harvested and shipped through truckers over the road to mills where thousands of people are employed and then packaged and then again trucked across the country and distributed to retailers who run retail stores with uh, employees who check out groceries and bag them and load them in your car so that you can get up in the morning and have that prayer fulfilled in your life. Isn't that not true? What do you think would happen if we all became missionaries? We'd all die. That's what would happen. That, that God calls somebody who's assigned to each his place. And there is not one of those places along that chain of things that brings to you and I our daily bread. There's not one spot along that way that is sacred and one spot that isn't. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, that's work. That's sacred work. But here's the problem. We have a big problem. It was of catastrophic proportion. Genesis 3. I'll read it to you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For, the dust, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now this wonderful, beautiful thing called work is going to become incredibly frustrating. And you're going to have plans and you're going to have visions for your work. And it's going to take you longer than you thought. And it's going to be harder than you thought. And it's going to get frustrated. And things aren't going to grow right. And yeah, the grain's going to come up, but there's going to be thorns and thistles. It's going to diminish the crop. It's going to make it much less enjoyable, the work that God has called you to do. And so a farmer plants a field. And what happens? It floods. And the next year it's too dry. And, and then there's a good crop and then there's two more bad years. And I lived in northern Minnesota. I, I know all about farming and the frustration. A business owner invests in a new product and then recession sets in and he goes bankrupt. A pastor starts a new church and then contention sets in and, and the ministry and... and the whole thing begins to unravel. Work 
can be very disappointing. That's just the truth. It can be very hard. And, and that's the world in which you and I now toil in. Tolkien in his, Tolkien in his book talks about he talks about an, an artist who died weeping because he had never painted the, the, there was a tree that he envisioned painting and he could never get it the way he wanted and he, he could just never paint that tree the way he wanted and so he died. And the story tells that he went to heaven and, and God brought him to the place where he was to live and there in the front yard was the tree. Just as he had imagined it. And he makes the point that perhaps someday those visions of, of what we wanted to do will someday come to fruition. But it's not going to be in this life. In this life we live under the curse. We could, we could go to the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon looks at wisdom. He tried wisdom. He said it's all futile. And then, and then he tried pleasure and he said that didn't satisfy. And then he tries accumulating things. You know, homes, cars, all this stuff. And he says it, it's all toilsome. He said it's all futile under the sun. And so here's, here's his conclusion. He says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. By the way, that phrase, under the sun, many feel that means the life that we do apart in the temporal, apart from that which is eternal. So life under the sun, he says, it's grievous to me. It's like chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for because I must leave them to one who will come after me. And then in the end, he says this, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, without him, without going beyond the temple, without God, he asks this question, who can eat and find enjoyment? To the man who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing and handing it over to one who pleases God. This too is meaningless. <clears throat> and so we see here that, that work is something that we are called to make the most of. But if that is our foundation, if there's nothing, if, if we just live under the sun and nothing beyond that, work becomes very, very toilsome and actually futile. Work cannot be our God. Work cannot be the place, it is not what we use for power or to get money or to get personal significance because when we do that, it becomes idolatrous. Only God can give us that in our lives. So whenever God steps out of your life, the danger of work coming in as, a, as an idol is always very, very powerful. We can look at the Tower of Babel. We don't have time this morning. But that was, you know, that group of people. And this is what they said. They discovered how to make bricks. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And then we see the pride of work and the, the separation from God. They said, we can, build a, we can build a building up to heaven. We don't need God to get there. We can build a building there. And God frustrated their work. That's what God does. 
when we become proud and when, when we, we lose sight of him, he, he frustrates that work that he's given us to do. <clears throat> well, let me move to a final point here. And that is the impact of the gospel upon our work. God's grace enables us to look at work in a whole new way. And uh, two things. One is common grace. Important to understand this. Common grace is the grace that God extends to everybody. And God extends grace to everybody. We're made in His image. He gives everybody abilities to do things and to work. And so you rub shoulders with people that are doing those works to help provide for creation, to help care for our world. And in God's common grace, He he allows us to do that. And I want to say to you, we should appreciate the work that unbelievers do for the betterment of this world. Because there are people that are very good at what they do that are not believers, that are not Christians, that contribute to that work. And that is part of the common grace of God in our world and around us. And then there is redeeming grace. Redeeming grace. And that is the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is so critical because this is what keeps work from becoming an idol in our lives. Work is sacred, but it does not define who we are. Jesus Christ defines who we are. That's why when you lose your job or you're unemployed, you don't lose your identity. You you don't lose your foundation unless work has become your foundation. When we grow older and we can no longer work or do the things we did, it is our, the grace of Jesus Christ that continues to identify who we are. Our work does not identify who we are. The grace of Jesus Christ tells us we cannot get our significance from our work. Because if we do, we'll end up using people rather than serving them in our work. Let me just give you one example, and, and then I'm going to conclude here with a, <clears throat> a short little video. How powerful this, this, this is. I, I was listening to a story of a, a pastor, and this woman came to church, and he said, how did you come here? She said, you know what? It was through my supervisor at work. So well, tell me about it. He said, I have a supervisor at work, and she said, I made a mistake. And he went into his boss, and he, he took the blame for my mistake. So she went to her, this woman went to her supervisor. She said, why did you, why did you do that? Why would you do that? And, and he kind of didn't really say, didn't really answer the question. She kept persisting. So finally he sat down with her and he said, I'll tell you why I did that. He said, I did that because I'm a Christian. And he said, I have someone who took the blame every mistake I have ever made. And he said, because I have a God who did that for me, he allowed me to do that for you. She said, what church do you go to? He said, I go to Redeemer Church. Next Sunday, she showed up at Redeemer Church. And two, over the next few months, she, her life was transformed. You see, that's the power of the gospel in the workplace. And that's the power of someone who understands that the purpose of work is to serve people. 
I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you're sweeping floors after hours in, in some uh, <clears throat> business uptown. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If what you do, you do to the glory of God as if you're serving the Lord and you do because you want to serve the people. That those people, when they walk through those doors that next day, that you want to provide a place that's clean and healthy for them to be in. Whatever it is. I'm here to tell you this morning that that is sacred work. And it may be more sacred than the work your pastor's doing. Or somebody else that you admire. Because you never know someone's heart. You never know why they're doing what they're doing. And God looks at the heart and every work that is done, no matter what the work, for His purposes, is sacred, sacred work. I want to conclude this morning with a, one of the videos I, I like. I may have shown it a few years ago. But uh, here's a woman who has caught a vision for the work that God has will conclude with this today. When I first moved to New York City, I thought I knew why I was coming here. It was going to be an adventure. I had my own agenda. I had no idea how much I would fall in love with the kids of the city and how much they would teach me about myself and change my life. I treasure my morning commutes on the subway. It's my time. Sometimes it's my only time with God. In those moments, I know His love for me. And I know that that's going to carry on throughout my day. And I know it's going to help me to do my job well. The Bronx is one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. 75% of the people live below the poverty line. And where there's poverty, of course, there's going to be violence and sadness and strife, ugliness. Right in the middle of the Bronx is Middle School 223 where I'm a reading and writing teacher to sixth graders. It's where I spend my days every day. A lot of our kids at our school go home to shelters. They go home to homes where they're in charge. They see people get shot in front of their apartment door. Life has not been easy for them or kind to them. Morning. Good morning. Hey guys, thanks for coming in quietly. Many of my students haven't been loved well. They've been abandoned, they've been promised things that have never come. They've been promised relationships with their fathers or mothers that have never happened. And so they're just worn, they're weathered, and they don't trust love. On the first day of school, the first thing that I tell them is, I've been thinking about you all summer. I love you already. You may not believe this, but you can't earn my love. You could make straight A's all year and have perfect behavior all year, or you can get detention three times a week and I'm gonna love you the same. And then I spend all year trying to prove it. 
So I want you to think back to Monday. We chose that one personal narrative that we're going to publish and celebrate and put out there to the world. Who am I as a person? What do I really want people to know about who I am? Well, it wasn't until recently. Is it going to go? Okay. So maybe I'll have to invite people back next week to see the air. Uh, <clears throat> you want me to tell you what happens? <laughs> I think one of the powerful things <clears throat> in the scene that you're about to see, she tells her own story. And. Uh, of her own parents' divorce. And it's interesting to see the looks on the, the kids' faces as they realize that um, this is a woman who understands what it's like to come home to a different parent and, and what it's like to go, what it's like to live in that kind of life. And I think, I think what grabbed me about Lindsay's life is that she just understands and, and God has transformed her to realize that you know, the important thing about life is people. And when you do a work and, and you get up in the day and, and your thought is, how can I spend my life with my gifts and my abilities? How can I do that to better the people around me? And, and I don't care if it's serving hamburgers at a, a fast food place or being a teacher in a school in the Bronx, or whatever it is. Uh, I think the challenge for all of us is that our life can be incredibly sacred if we'll just do it as unto the Lord and, and realize how God looks at the work that he's given each one of us to do. So with that, I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to conclude. And... Uh, Father, I believe that you're trying to teach us something today, that work is something that you created. But there's a lot of frustrations in our work. And you understand that. It's part of the fall. It's part of the curse that we all live under. And one day you'll change all that. And in the new heaven and the new earth, we will continue to work, but it will be without frustration. And the visions and dreams that we have will be completely fulfilled. But until that day, you call us to be faithful. You call us to realize that the work you've given us to do is for your purposes. And that purpose is to care about a world that you've given us and you've graciously created for us. And so, Father, for each one of us, as we begin this fall, and for some it means going back to work, for others continuing in work, might you give us a new vision for what you've called us to do. And might we have that satisfaction of knowing that, as your word tells us, Whatever we do, do it with all our heart as, as unto you. And Father, when we do that, every work, all of the work that's represented in this place becomes equally as sacred to you. And so Lord, we thank you for that truth today. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to our connection time right through the back doors and you're all invited for that.